For decades, the Vietnam War has been a Hollywood obsession. Apocalypse Now, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, First Blood. These were blockbuster films, embraced by audiences and critics alike. And for decades, they've helped us understand a painful war and understand each other. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Brian Raftery, and this is Do We Get to Win This Time? How Hollywood Made the Vietnam War. Listen on the Big Picture feed. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next-level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S, IAN.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. It is Thursday, September 21st. Rupert Murdoch is probably the most influential figure in global media over the past 50 years. And Fox News is almost certainly the most powerful single media outlet in America. Donald Trump definitely would not have become president without Fox. And Fox still depends on Trump to drive its ratings and the billions of dollars in profit it generates for the Murdochs. Which is why it's always been interesting to me how much Rupert really dislikes Trump and his populist brand of conservative politics. He's called Trump a moron and has taken a bunch of steps to sabotage Trump, basically, according to this new book called The Fall, The End of Fox News and the Murdoch Dynasty, which is by Michael Wolf, the author of Fire and Fury and two other Trump White House exposés, as well as a previous biography of Murdoch, which Rupert also hated. Wolf is a controversial figure in conservative media and Trump land. The Fall is basically a chronicle of the past couple years at Fox News and the larger Murdoch empire, including the 2020 election lies, the Arizona call for Biden that Rupert personally okayed, although there's some confusion about that, the $800 million defamation settlement in the Dominion case, and the firing shortly thereafter of Tucker Carlson, Fox's top-rated host. There's also a lot about the succession-style jockeying amongst Rupert's four children to determine what will happen to the empire when Murdoch dies, which might happen soon. Rupert is 92 now, and Wolf describes him as frail and often disoriented, so much so that he sometimes fades in and out Mitch McConnell style. I'm a Murdochologist. I've interviewed James and Lachlan over the years and followed the family pretty closely. I also edited Michael Wolf when he wrote a column for The Hollywood Reporter a few years ago. So I'm happy to have him on the show today to discuss the new book which I should say Fox News is not a fan of. We won't comment on the specifics, but in a statement to CNN, it said, the fact that this author's books are spoofed by Saturday Night Live is really all we need to know. Okay, so today it's Michael Wolf, the state of play in Murdoch world, and what the future holds for this very peculiar and powerful media empire. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Michael Wolf. Author, journalist, power broker, man of the world. Welcome, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. I have to reminisce. Before we talk about your very interesting new book, The Fall, I have to reminisce a little because 
one of the highlights when I was at The Hollywood Reporter was getting a chance to work with you on your column that you were writing for Hollywood Reporter. And one of the fun and, things and like, that- And likewise, one of the highlights for me was working okay, with Okay, well, thank you. And I was reminiscing the other day because if you remember the whole Trump saga, and I, I'm sure there are missing 25 different steps and layers here, but the whole path that led to fire and fury and you getting to be embedded in the White House for the first hundred days started with a cover story that you wrote for Hollywood Reporter on Donald Trump when he came to California to do Jimmy Kimmel for the California primary. And you ended up after the show sitting in Trump's Beverly Hills house, interviewing him over the only piece of food that was in that house, which was haagen ice cream, which is still my favorite detail. Totally random event that would dictate the next um, seven years of my life. Amazing. Um, just the, the call came, do you want to interview Trump? Sure. And from there on in, it hasn't stopped. It's pretty amazing. And you would call me. You were still doing your column. It's your fault. <laughs> exactly. I know. Send all the hate letters to me. But I remember you were still doing your column for THR and you would call me and you'd be like whispering. I'd be like, what's going on? I'm in the Oval Office. I'm sitting right outside the Oval Office. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, it's, I mean, to even remember, God, um, again, I can only say your fault. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. So let's talk about this book. As you know, I am a Murdochologist. Um, I try to read everything there is about the Murdoch family. I'm fascinated by them. You have a lot of details in this book and we're getting up there where Rupert is now 92. His health is pretty spotty. You describe a scene at his granddaughter's wedding where he was dressed by his daughter quite peculiarly, and he wasn't all the way coherent. So give me your big picture state of play with the Murdoch siblings and how they relate to Rupert. You know, okay, so understand that the structure of the Murdoch holdings is as follows. Upon his death, the power ownership of the company, the voting majority of the company passes to his four children in equal amounts, and there is no tiebreaker. So these four people, and Murdoch has six children, but two have no political participation, the two youngest ones. So the four older children, oh, the oldest being 65, um, James is the youngest, and he will be I think he turns 50 uh, relatively soon. Um, mm -hmm. So they have to agree. I mean, there, there is literally no other way to go forward in this except that without their, without the agreement of three of them. Um, right. Now, so at, the, at this point, it seems to be, the division seems to be Lachlan Murdoch, who is now the CEO of Fox and the executive chairman of News Corp, the newspaper, side of the Murdoch Holdings, wants to keep his job. His brother, James, has, has very clearly vowed to take the job from him. Um, <laughs> and this is for I, I, probably many reasons, but also political reasons. He believes Fox is a cancer on the American um, political body. He wants to turn it into a force for good. You're right. His sister, Elizabeth, who lives in London, tends to side with her brother, James, because she's a relatively liberal, normal person, um, hates Fox, as all Europeans do. 
But her feeling is, hey, this is cable television. It's not going to ever get more valuable. Why don't we just get out of it? Let's sell. So she wants to sell. Yes. And the oldest sister, Prudence, the one of the older children who has never been part of the company, never been in the media business, lives in Australia, and she tends to side with the two votes. So in other words, whatever the majority is, that's where she tends to be. So given that, it does not look very good for Lachlan Murdoch. Right. So does that mean that within a year or two after Rupert dies, we will see the end or the sale of Fox? Yes, I think inevitably, indubitably, there is no situation in which Lachlan can maintain control over a right-wing U.S. network. No situation in which that happens. I can't find one. Mm, Interesting. So let's play this out. Let's say James convinces the sisters to side with him. He takes over. He might not sell it. I mean, you write in the book that James's worry is that selling it doesn't really solve the problem. It just passes it on to private equity. He does not want to sell this company. He wants to make it a force for good. But, okay, I mean, that is, that's nice, great for him. But a force for good would alienate the audience and turn Uh, a billion-dollar grocer into, what, CNN? Yeah, exactly. It would probably cost the family a billion dollars in earnings anyway. And he's willing to do that. He knows that and is willing to do it. Yes. I mean, I think he sees, well, what 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 option is there? Now, there's an interesting wrinkle here mm-hmm. because the Murdoch family, while they have voting control, does not control that much. So James doing this, I mean, actually, it's actually a great deal for him is that he could get control of this relatively substantial cable channel for very little. And if they cut off significant amounts of profits of of, of Fox, it would have relatively little impact on him personally. Shareholders, on the other hand, would be screwed. Yeah, wouldn't they sue? I mean, this is the classic case. If you're a shareholder in Fox or News Corp and they're tanking the company, wouldn't you just sue and win? Well, you would sue. You wouldn't necessarily win. Right. Um, it's family you know, it's controlled. You buy the stock knowing it's controlled by the family. Exactly. And management makes certain decisions. They're made um, reputably and honestly. Um, but they tried to recombine the two sides and the shareholders freaked and they abandoned the plan. Exactly. But that was a that was a different situation in which the shareholders, in order to do that deal, the shareholders, all of the shareholders, 100% of the shareholders, instead of just the voting shareholders, had to approve the deal. Interesting. I'm just fascinated how that's going to play out. But let's talk about the current state of Fox News. And you have a lot of somewhat comical or alarming, depending on your view of Fox, details in your book. Rupert doesn't really like watching Fox, you write. He certainly doesn't like Sean Hannity. He called him, well, this is his word, a retard and stupid, just like Americans. A famous Australian term of endearment. Right. He can't watch the channel for very long. Everyone who works there seems to be drunk a lot. The general counsel, Viet Dinh, was drunk at lunch a lot. 
Laura Ingram, drunk on Sean Hannity's plane, going to Roger Ailes' funeral. No, 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 no. She, he didn't let her on the plane because she was so drunk, he feared that she was going to have her head in the toilet the whole on, on the trip. She was banished. Key clarification the there. Yes. yes. Thank you. Why doesn't Rupert change the tenor of Fox if he is unhappy with the product? Is it the situation where the audience is more powerful than the owner at this point? Yes. And remember, he has tried to change. The DeSantis bubble is a Rupert bubble. Right. Um, so he is in there pitching in as much as he can. Remember, he's 92 years old. The other thing and it's important to remember about Murdoch is he's not a television guy. He's never been interested in television. Um, yeah. He, he's not a television executive. He's not a television programmer. And this is likewise true of, of Lachlan. So in some sense, I don't think they really know how to change the Fox News, not to mention it makes so much money. And, you know, among the things that Rupert are, is, is addicted to are money and power. So right. being willing to sacrifice that is a a painful notion and maybe an impossible notion for Murdoch. It's amazing. This is a guy who's tried his entire life to be in such a powerful position in media that he's able to elect a president. And then the president that his network elects is a president that he doesn't even like. A phenomenal irony. There it is. So that's the lesson about power. Um, in the end, it screws you. <laughs> and it's funny you say that about television because it's so clear. I mean, Rupert never liked the Hollywood stuff. I mean, he lived out here. He has the winery. But I went to an event at the winery a couple of years ago and I talked to him. And it was funny, the phrasing. I remembered when he when I was talking to him about the industry and stuff. And he kept using the phrase, you people and you and you guys out here. And I was like, you are one of the most powerful media people in the world. And for decades, you owned the studio and the network. It's not you people. You're part of this community. When he was actively involved with the studio, and that was always a, a moment where everybody at the studio was trying to keep him out of meetings right. um, because he would complain about the stars and then always propose that they do a remake of Crocodile Dundee. I mean, this is comical oh stuff. You can't, you cannot make it up. You know, a famous meeting just before Titanic came out and, you know, and Titanic would basically change the fortunes of Fox, the studio and of the company. And, uh, you know, but he was furious about cost overruns and um, they sold half of it to Paramount. Yeah. And one of the financial executives in the meeting started to, well, what what Rupert thought was a, was a smirk on had had a smirk on his face. And Rupert demanded the executive in question be fired. Because he dared laugh or be amused by his cost cutting. Exactly. And at that point, everybody knew this was going to be a major, a major hit. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 
miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Getting a little bit into the weeds here at Fox. You described the scene on November 8th, 2020, where the decision desk at Fox News has determined through technology that Rupert was very excited about. They were going to be able to beat everybody on their election night calls. His journalistic instinct was very powerful there. And he said, this is what we want. So the technology worked or was about to work. They got the data. Arizona was going to go for Biden. The CEO of Fox, Suzanne Scott, is told she goes to Lachlan. Lachlan goes to Rupert. And then Rupert, according to the scene in your book, says, fuck him and gives the okay to call the election. Now, there's some confusion based on his mumbling or what he actually meant by fuck him, whether that was, yeah, go call it for Biden which essentially meant Trump was going to lose the election or whether he was just saying, fuck him, like, fuck this guy. What do you think Rupert wanted to say there? Did he want to make the call? There's a couple of, a couple of important context points here. Number mm-hmm. one is you never know what Rupert is saying. <laughs> so here, here's the story. When I was writing my Murdoch biography um, in 2009, I was there with uh, Murdoch, you know, one morning, uh, we were talking over coffee, and then we finished and then we both left together. So we're on the elevator, the elevator goes down a couple of floors, uh, the doors open and Donald Trump gets on. So Rupert says something to him, something that sounds kind of neighborly or, you know, nothing small, small talk. Trump turns to me and says, do you ever understand anything he's talking about. (laughs) Yeah, Donald Trump's not exactly the the world's greatest communicator either. No, but he does say exactly what's on his mind. That is true. And that's what everybody who's who's speaking to Murdoch, that's what's on their mind. What is he saying? But this sounds like a succession episode where he says, fuck him, and nobody knows what that means, and they end up calling the election for Joe Biden and history is made. Exactly. And then remembers after this, you know, the network goes into a turmoil because Trump is attacking the network. There's sudden surges in Newsmax and the other conservative channel. Um, and Rupert starts to backtrack on, on this. Um, but do you starts, think he wanted to make that call? Uh, yes, actually. I do, too. I think he still deep down is a journalist. Also, he still deep down hates Trump. <laughs> you know, so I, I don't know about the the journalist. I mean, R- Rupert is very capable of throwing over his journalism sensibility sure. um, at any moment, and especially one that might cost him money. But I think in that moment, it was Trump. He hated Trump. 
the idea that Trump would become the president again was anathema to him. This was his moment of control over something that he could not control, which is to say the presidency of Donald Trump. And now he's back in the same situation. The same. And it's even it's it's apparently eating at him even more. But he's stuck. He tried. He tried to make Ron DeSantis happen. It's like fetch. It's not happening. Right. But he's still all over the, you know, Nikki Haley is, I mean, it's like, you know, he tried to the last couple of weeks turn it into the Nikki Haley network, which is quite a programming concept. Right. One other thing you write in the book, you believe that James and Lachlan conspired in a premeditated way to get behind Gretchen Carlson and her suit against Roger Ailes to bring down Roger Ailes at Fox News. Is that accurate? Well, I, I would I would phrase it somewhat differently. It's certainly what Roger Ailes believed and many other people at the network believe. Um, so I'm representing that point of view. Okay. Well, but Roger had a lot of conspiracy theories in his head. I want your take on what the facts suggest. The facts as you have reported them. Absolutely. I mean, the, the boys hated Ailes. Um, he hated them. There was nothing but bad blood there. Ailes was always trying to push them out and had succeeded in several instances before and was unwilling to cede the authority that they demanded and that they thought they deserved and that they thought that they earned. Um, they were the co-managers of the company at that point. And Ailes was always, always undermining them. So, yeah, offered the possibility that they could get rid of him. They seized it. And they seized it in a way that went around their father, who they suspected would have reversed this. But there's another irony there, because if James was behind this and the whole push to get Roger Ailes out, because he wanted to make Fox a force for good. The leadership vacuum at Fox has arguably, or maybe not arguably, made it worse for James. I mean, without the Roger Ailes hand guiding things and someone who could say no to these hosts, they basically do whatever they want and say whatever they want. And that's kind of what led to 2020 in the Dominion case. Yes, and even more so, I mean, without Ailes there regulating things and being the voice, the message, the voice and the message became Donald Trump himself. So it's one of those kinds of things. You overthrow the dictator and the situation after that, and you think, okay, you know, Saddam Hussein is gone. Um, but in fact, the af aftermath is worse. Right. The devil you know. And it's funny because it seems at least the picture that you paint in the book is that there is a leadership vacuum at Fox. No one really knows what to do. They have no digital strategy, really, for how to evolve this network for the digital times. They can't control the hosts, really. They don't really know what to do with the tenor of the programming, which is what led to the push into the conspiracy theories, which led to the Dominion and Smartmatic lawsuits. The general counsel, Viet Din, up until nearly the end of that case, was still telling people not to worry about it and that they're going to go all the way to the Supreme Court and they're going to win. And all of it seems to be a classic case of kind of legacy media rot 
and mismanagement. And just and on top of that, there is really only one decision maker, and he's ninety-two. Right. What is Rupert's state of mind? What is? I mean, you describe some troubling scenes, but you don't come right out and say the man has lost it. Do you think he's lost it? You know, I think he's 92. So yes, he has considerably lost it. 92 is not is not 82. You know, but I think at other times he can be on top of things. But we've all known 92-year-olds and um, they don't run a significant public company. And actually he runs two. And you say in the book that this will almost certainly be Rupert's last election. So you don't believe he's getting to 96. Do the math. (laughs) All right. So let's wrap this up with big picture. What does the end of Fox or the diminishment of Fox mean for the media ecosystem in this country and around the world? Well, I mean, I think there's two questions. What does it mean for the political system and what does it mean for the media system? I mean, the media system, uh, you know, I mean, it's cable television. Um, Whatever happens, whatever replaces cable television supersedes um, the fate of Fox here. But is it replicable? Can someone come along if Fox is turned into a, quote, force for good? Will one of the other rivals step in? Will somebody else be able to launch something? Or is this the end of that? I think what happens now, I mean, Fox is kind of a laggard here, which is to say it has been able to maintain its monopoly hold on its audience far longer than it should have been. And this is a result of of its own market share. It's a result of that its audience has has traditionally been, been older you know, less technologically adept than all, all of those those things. And because Roger Ailes, I guess, was so good at his programming job and because Trump stepped in and the Fox audience became the Trump audience and that all held together. But that's, in, that's kind of anomalous in, in media terms. And I think what happens there is the same thing that's happened to all other media. It fragments. Um, And I think we are seeing now the beginnings of a fragmented conservative or right-wing media, that there will be a lot of other channels and a lot of other voices and a lot of other... You talk about Ben Shapiro and his rise. Exactly. And a lot of other platforms and a lot of other ways for people to make money and probably actually more money than they would be able to make at Fox. And at some point, Donald Trump will go away. I know he's like a like one of these cockroaches that you can't kill. But at some point, he will not be the driving force of ratings on Fox. At some point, yes. (laughs) You don't see that time coming anytime soon. Well, no, and I think it's a problem now. It's one of the the contradictions of uh, within the network itself, that the network is opposed in a way more and more and more and more implacably opposed to its biggest star, who is Donald Trump. So it's just another one of those contradictions at the center of, 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 of Fox that, that if you play this out, you say, well, this is just not sustainable. James trying to remake Fox as a force for good would be probably the funniest thing in the history of American media. I, I am so here for that. It would, uh, the reactions and him installing, you know, straight news anchors or hiring Rachel Maddow or something like that would be amazing. But remember, James has $2 billion in his pocket, as do his siblings. So 
you know, it's that other form of of media. Just get a really rich owner. Right, right. All right, Michael, thank you very much. The book, The Fall, is out uh, on Tuesday, and uh, it's another barn burner. Congrats. Thanks. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, are you an, a fan of the Expendables franchise? I don't know why I missed these. They're, I guess that's a blind spot for me. They all came out when I was in high school and college, and I, I think this was more in the dad genre. I think so. Yeah, I mean, Stallone is 77 now. He's starring in this thing, Expendables 4. Comes out this weekend. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it was a thing 10 years ago. And I think getting all these older action stars into the same movie was kind of cool. But these have had diminishing returns. The last one, Expendables 3, came out in 2014, opened to 16 million, ended up grossing 214 worldwide. So profitable, but uh, not what the first two did. And the tracking for this one, I'm surprised that the tracking's at 18 for the weekend. I'm going to take the under. I, I don't think it's going to get to 18. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of stars in it. I didn't realize how many people they just plucked and dropped into certain movies. It's like those old, remember those movies like Valentine's Day that just had every sure, celebrity? Like the Gary man. Marshall movies or like Cannonball Run or whatever. It's like the action movie equivalent of that. Yeah. You shoot for a week in Bulgaria and they can put you on the poster. And like Harrison Ford was in the second one. Like I guarantee the you that guy's not shooting. Oh, he's in the third one? Yeah, along with Mel Gibson and Wesley Snipes. And the second one has Bruce Willis and Jean-Claude Van Damme. There's right. a lot of people in these. Yeah. I, I saw the first one. I think I went to the premiere of the first one. Uh, they're fun. Unfortunately, the planned all-female spinoff called The Expendables never came to fruition, sadly. So after nine years, the third one came out nine years ago. Who was the one who you think kind of got things going for this fourth one? Was it Stallone being bored? Was it the studio being like, all right, we have nothing yeah, really studios right probably, now. What do we got? Lionsgate, which is releasing this, is in the process of trying to sell itself. And they want as many franchises on their calendar as they can. That's why they got another Saw coming out. They got another Hunger Games. They, you know, they're trying to telegraph to investors and potential buyers that they can have real franchises just like the big studios do. So they're digging up anything they can. And they have this Expendables property that hasn't been done in nine years. Stallone's still alive. He's, you know, I guess in good shape, uh, 77, but he can still pretend to be an action hero. And here we are. They should get Rupert Murdoch in here. Why not? They should get Rupert Murdoch. He would be great. Uh, he could be the, the villain. He honestly might be. I don't know what the plot of this movie is, but there's a decent chance. Well, no, there was a Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough, that basically had a Rupert Murdoch-style media billionaire who was trying to take over the world. Oh, so I think that's already been done. Okay. But yeah, so I'm going to take the under on $18 million for Expendables 4. I think uh, that's we'll right. We'll see. It's a slow time right now. There's It is. It's people depressing. aren't going to the movies. It's depressing. But all right, that's where we are. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Michael Wolf. I want to thank producer Greg Horbeck and our editor, Jesse Lopez. We will see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.